You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. The next season starts on October 22nd. Get your subscription of a half year's worth of Magnums then at savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, So last week was really interesting for me personally and professionally. The week sort of began with a couple of protests at my public speaking events where I go to colleges and I do Savage Love Live where I was protested not by the conservative Christian groups or the campus crusade for Christ on a cracker but by queer groups, by the LGBT Resource Center who thinks I'm the enemy of the trans and the bi and everything else. Um, which is, you know, whatever, kind of funny. Like I've said some shit over the years that pissed people off and I still have to address it. That's fine. And, you know, I was a self-righteous college activist once myself. It's nice to see that reflected back at me all these years later. But the week ended with me being attacked at the Values Voters Summit. So that was my week. Attacked by queers who think I'm not a good enough queer and attacked by right-wing fundamentalist Christian assholes who think I'm a danger to everything good and decent, called heteronormative by the queers, called a dangerous sex radical by the fundamentalist Christians. I don't know what to do. But what was interesting, what they said at the Values Voter Summit, what they attacked was somebody uh, gave a speech in which they said, beware the monogamish, that their issue now increasingly with me is my long campaign against monogamy, which I am not actually against. If monogamy is what you want to do and it makes you happy, I think you should be monogamous. I just think everyone needs to admit that monogamy is difficult and that it's a struggle and that people are unlikely to execute monogamy perfectly over the life of perhaps a multi-decade marriage and circumstances change and what's important to you as a couple may change and later in life, accommodations may need to be made. And If we could just be realistic about it, I think more relationships are likely to survive. That's my monogamy v. non-monogamy platform. I just want everyone to be happy. And I'm a kind of conservative. Mark Oppenheimer kind of nailed me for that in the New York Times, that half of what I'm saying to people about monogamy is to make families and relationships and, and couples, particularly couples with children, more stable, not less stable. One of the things that contributes to the instability of super long-term relationships are people failing at this thing that we know people are very likely to fail at. We kind of write the death warrant for a relationship at the beginning if we make the perfect execution of lifelong monogamy, the defining characteristic of a successful marriage. And if we define infidelity as always a relationship extinction level event, it will function that way. And infidelity, adultery, touches most relationships of multi-decade duration. So maybe we should, you know, diffuse that bomb. Maybe we shouldn't make that so – put so much weight on that. That's my monogamy platform. Beware the monogamish. We are coming to talk sense to you. We are coming to give you the tools uh, and, and the concept and, and the language you need to make your monogamous relationships stronger. To make your hopefully lifelong monogamy, if that's what you want, to make that relationship likelier to survive. If only in that you can stop pretending. One of the things that undermines a lot of monogamous commitments are people pretending that they're not attracted to anyone else. And their partner's policing them for evidence that they actually are attracted to other people, which of course they are, just like you are attracted to other people. That's the thing that always blows my mind about you know a good chunk of the mail I get and the calls I get. Oh, my husband was watching porn. That must mean he's attracted to other people. Of course he's fucking attracted to other people. And so are you salivating over the 
Fifty Shades of Grey movie that's coming down the pipe. Yeah, so are you. Don't you want to fuck your personal trainer? Yes, you want to fuck your personal trainer. Do you fuck your personal trainer? No, because you made a monogamous commitment that you take seriously. Your husband, yes, he wants to fuck the babysitter. Of course he wants to fuck the babysitter. You should be worried if he didn't want to fuck the babysitter, but he doesn't because he takes his monogamous commitment. Seriously, this is my monogamy agenda, my pro-monogamy agenda for which I was attacked at the Values Voters Summit. And what I frequently have pointed out about the monogamish, about people who make a different accommodation, people who are committed but in a monogamous relationship, I actually got into this backstage, got into it, had a little convo with this backstage at The View. I was on The View. How weird is that? With Jenny McCarthy and Barbara Walters a couple of weeks ago where Jenny McCarthy said that my partner and I cheat on each other and Barbara Walters asked how that works. And I pointed out we don't cheat. It's not cheating. But Barbara Walters wanted to know exactly what that looks like. She said. And I said, it looks like me cheating on one end of a guy while my husband cheats on me at the same time at the other end of the same guy. And Barbara Walters threw up and fell out of her chair. But afterwards, we were, Jenny McCarthy and I were backstage for a minute and she was like, I could never do non-monogamy. I could never do that. I, you know, I, I, I have to have a monogamous commitment. Um, and I asked her how many of those monogamous commitments she's had. And she's had a bunch. She's been in a lot of short-term and some relatively long-term monogamous relationships, but never a non-monogamous one. I pointed out to her that I've been with Terry for 20 years, just about, and the non-monogamy has actually made us stronger. We're still together and we're committed. We're just not non-monogamously committed. And I actually do think that the non-monogamy aspects of a relationship have made our relationship stronger. And that's something people never acknowledge. We hear about Non-monogamous relationships when they fail and then we say, oh, of course, non-monogamous relationship failed. We don't hear about the relationships typically because most people in non-monogamous relationships aren't open about it. We don't hear about the ones that not only survive and thrive but perhaps survive and thrive because of the non-monogamy. Non-monogamy gets the blame when a relationship fails. It never gets the credit when a relationship succeeds. Anyway, beware the monogamous. I was in Washington, D.C. this weekend speaking at the Jewish Literary Festival. I'm not Jewish myself, but one of my first boyfriends was Jewish. So maybe I'm a little Jewish by insemination. But I was invited to speak at the Jewish Literary Festival in Washington, D.C. As an Irish Catholic, uh, I gave the speech in a Methodist church. It was crazy. You know, if God exists, that he didn't send a lightning bolt down to destroy that church with my potty mouth in it and all those Jews, uh, then God doesn't fucking exist. But after the speech, this woman came up to me. And she thanked me uh, standing there with her husband because we – we she credited us at the podcast, the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth, Nancy, me. We had saved her marriage because her marriage was falling apart because they couldn't make each other happy and they kept trying and it didn't work. And so now they are monogamous and have been for more than two years and they are ecstatic together. It actually reinvigorated their sexual connection with each other. Once they were no longer solely responsible for each other's complete sexual fulfillment, they didn't necessarily have to look to each other for everything and they weren't constantly disappointed in each other and they were thriving as a couple because they are monogamish. Monogamish didn't just enhance their marriage but saved their marriage. And I asked her if anybody but me knew and she said no. She couldn't tell her kids. Couldn't tell her coworkers, couldn't tell her friends. So she is just – she and her husband who were there, who were very nice people and it was delightful to meet them. She and her husband are two of the many out there who are socially monogamous. They appear to be monogamous. They allow people to assume they're monogamous but they are actually not monogamous and they are happy and they are still together and they are still loving and supporting each other and raising their kids together and they are happy. And these are the people, according to the Values Voters Summit, that you should beware. 
beware these happy couples who are fine, who are posing no threat to anyone, who are not trying to make non-monogamous couples out of the monogamous ones, who prefer to be monogamous, who are doing what works for them. Yeah, beware them. Beware the monogamous. They are coming to leave you alone. They are coming to not blow a load on you because if you're not into them, they're going to move on to someone who is. They are coming for nothing. They are coming for fun. They are coming in people who want them to come in on or near or around them. They are not some people you need to be afraid of. And I am not someone that you need to be afraid of either, despite what you may have heard at the Values Voters Summit this weekend in Washington, D.C. Oh, one more quick thing about the Values Voters Summit. My favorite anti-gay speech, and there were many, but my favorite was the dude who compared gay people to kleptomaniacs. You know, when it when a woman gives a man a blowjob, it's just a loving act of oral sex. But when a dude gives another dude a blowjob, that's not a blowjob. That's a semen heist. We don't swallow. We abscond with the spunk. Come that if it had been blown down a woman's throat would have, you know, by some miracle maybe become a baby. But blown down a dude's throat is just stolen from God. <laughs> I am a kleptomaniac but for semen. It's like – it's like an alcoholic, but for chocolate, is a chocoholic. What would a kleptomaniac for semen be? A spunktomaniac. I'm a spunktomaniac, according to the Values Voter Summit. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. My name is Sarah, and I'm a 32-year-old bisexual female from New York. And my question is this. I just want to know how you feel about this whole Miley Cyrus thing, an open letter for Sinead O'Connor to Miley Cyrus. To me, it seemed like slut-shaming. I feel like if she really had motherly concern for Miley, she would have written her a, a private letter. But instead, she called out in public, said that she's basically a prostitute for the music industry and that she's pimping herself out. And to me, this just seems like straight-out slut-shaming. It's not really my style or my taste, but I feel like she, it's well within her right to express herself however she does. And uh, I don't see this as very much different than what Madonna did back in the day. So I'm just curious about what your feelings and what your thoughts are. I'd like to know what you think. I'm going to let you have the first and last words here on the Savage Lovecast about Miley Cyrus because what do I think? Um, I think I haven't thought about it. I think I don't care. I think I haven't been paying attention. You know, I heard about the VMA performance and I, I saw the gifts and the tongue lolling out of the mouth and it didn't look any different to me than – you know, Madonna writhing on the floor 30 years ago or 20 years ago at the VMAs with the crucifix and, you know, the little outrage a thon. Um, I, I just don't participate in those because I just can't bring myself to pay attention to pop music or pop stars. I've reached that stage of life. Well, I've always been in this stage of life. It's become more acute lately where I don't recognize anybody on the covers of the magazines at the checkout stand. I look at them and I'm like, who the fuck are those people? And Miley Cyrus and Olivia Mays was one of those who the fuck is that uh, on the cover of the ma magazine. So I'm just not going to – I'm not going to read up. I don't care about Miley. I don't care about what Sinead thinks about Miley. In a way, I don't care what you think about Miley. But I'm going to let you have the last word. You're right. Uh, I completely – I'm sure would agree with you if I gave enough of a shit to go read everything about Miley Cyrus as being written right now, that she is being slut-shamed and she should do whatever the fuck she wants and be whatever kind of pop star she wants. I did catch some of Saturday Night Live last weekend. I thought she was very funny. She seemed self-aware. So I don't think she needs to be lectured by me or Sinead O'Connor or Maureen Dowd or anyone else. Uh, but thank you very much for your call. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old gay male who's uh, usually into younger guys. So – I've always been hyper aware of the campsite rule, but this week I've started wondering if I'm truly following it at all. 
I got involved with a 22-year-old boy about five months ago, and it was pretty complicated from the start. A big part of what attracted us to each other in the first place is that we're both emotionally complex in the same way, and uh, he's an actor who's going to be out on tour doing contracts in another city for pretty much next year. But we hit it off so well that we just started a long-distance friendship over the phone that quickly turned into a very intense emotional connection, and eventually it became full-on romantic. So last month during the break in his schedule, he came to stay with me for a full two weeks. And it was awesome most of the time, but I also became aware of age gap issues that I probably would have noticed sooner than four months if we hadn't been getting to know each other long distance. Most importantly, that he drinks his insecurity and can't hold his liquor too well, and that would turn him into kind of an emotionally volatile, combative, tantrum-throwing mess whenever we went out. And it happened three times before we had a real conversation about it. And he actually took it to heart and was on his best behavior for the rest of the trip. But after he left, it became pretty clear to me that despite all the things I love about him, he still has a lot of growing up to do. And it's simply not fair for me to tell him not to act like a 22-year-old just because it doesn't fit my 32-year-old lifestyle. So I took your advice about ending things before it turns into something like me stringing him along for mercy's sake. And as much as I tried to do it as gently and honestly as possible, he still ended up pretty devastated. So uh, the question is, since his heart is totally broken right now, and I knew from the start that he's got enough inadequacy and abandonment issues as it is, shouldn't I have been the one to know better than to build a campsite there to begin with? And shouldn't I have been the adult to say more emphatically at the start, you know, we're both kind of a mess and you're very young, and this isn't a great idea, because now his heart is broken, and he's obviously not talking to me anymore, and I feel like I left the campsite kind of a wreck. Um, And also, do I have any business dating young guys if the only valid reason I have for breaking up with them is their immaturity? Dating a young guy and then objecting or being offended or, or shocked to discover immaturity there. It's like, you know, biting into a Twinkie and being surprised to find all that cream filling. It's kind of part of it, which is not to say that only young guys are immature. I've met plenty of really immature guys my own age and older uh, and immature guys in their 30s. And I've met plenty of shockingly mature – and by mature, what we mean is stable together, figured it out, sorted, uh, you know, young gay guys, guys in their 20s, early 20s. Uh, so – you shouldn't necessarily refrain from dating younger guys on the assumption that they're all going to be immature because they're not all going to be immature. They're immature at a higher rate because they haven't had much time to fucking mature. And older doesn't necessarily predict maturity, although you know you can assume they'll be mature at a higher rate, the older dudes, because they've had more time to mature. So you can continue dating the guys in the age range that you find attractive or if you're just open to dating guys of all ages and you meet somebody in their 20s, you can date them. Um, you know, your, your worries here about whether you did something wrong by dating this guy and then realizing after dating for a while that you guys weren't right for each other and he wasn't in a place or a stage of life or at a maturity level where a relationship was a possible thing or could be a going thing and you ended it, you're within your rights dating-wise. All's fair in love and war and that was fair. I don't think it's a violation necessarily of the campsite rule for someone to get hurt. You know, relationships end. They rarely end with everyone feeling blissful about the leave-taking and the parting. 
Usually there's a little bit of soreness and then heartbreak and then you walk, you go away and the wound heals over, heals up, cauterizes somehow and then you can deal with each other again. Then you can be friends. Usually then after a little period of sulking and heartbreak uh, and maybe not speaking, then you can come together, be friends and you realize that the relationship wasn't a mistake and that you learned and you grew and hopefully he learned and he grew. Props to you for coming down on him on the drinking and acting like an asshole thing. One of the things he needed to learn period to mature was to knock that shit off and he learned that because you pushed that on him. And now he may feel like, oh, I stopped drinking and acting like an asshole for nothing because he dumped me anyway. But I doubt very much that he's thinking that. He's probably thinking in my next relationship, clearly some of the ways I acted in this one cost me this relationship. And in my next relationship, I'm going to be a little bit more careful, a little bit wiser. I'm not going to get drunk and act like an asshole. I'm not going to be such an immature idiot. And there comes the maturity, right? There comes the growth and the self-awareness and the, a little bit of self-criticism. And you don't have to be on the rack about that. The campsite rule says, you know, leave them in better shape than you found them. Uh, you know, I've written no STDs, uh, no unplanned pregnancies, no unnecessary. I think the phrase I used was no unnecessary heartbreak. Don't make promises you can't keep and no unnecessary heartbreak or promises you're unlikely to keep. I think when you date someone much younger, it's good to say this might just be for a while and then maybe we'll be friends because you're in a much different place in life than I am. But right now this is really working and not every relationship has to be lifelong for it to have value and for everybody to get something out of it. So let's just let this be what it is for now. Say that at the outset. And then if you're together 30 years later, like Yahtzee, you guys won. Uh, but no unnecessary heartbreak means there might be some necessary heartbreak. In the mix. And this may have been for him, for it, to, for it to be the learning experience and the growth instigator that he needed, there might be some necessary heartbreak here in this experience. And you were the cause of that, perhaps. But I don't think you need to feel too guilty about it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 41 year old straight woman. My husband and I have been together since I was 20. And we were monogamous for about 20 years, and now we are monogamish. I have hooked up with two other people, including last year and again this year, I was lucky enough to hook up with this super hot guy who's 20 years younger than I am. Now, I totally agree with your position that oral comes standard, and any model without it should be returned to the factory. But when I was hooking up with this hot 22-year-old and I asked him to go down on me, he said he didn't do that. I pressed him a little bit and he said it just wasn't his thing. I said that it made me think less of him and he was kind of okay with that. I asked him if all the other women he slept with have been okay with no oral. He said yes. And although I wasn't happy about it, I went ahead with the rest of the hookup anyway, including giving him oral and being the first person ever to make him come that way. So why did I do all that? Just because he is so hot and I hate myself for it. Is that how good looking people go through life, getting away with whatever because people will do anything for them because they're hot? I think that's really my question. I gave him positive reinforcement for being a dick. That wasn't what I wanted to do, but I kind of couldn't help myself because he was so hot. Hello. Hey, it's Dan Savage. Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Do you have a hot guy's dick in your mouth right now? 
Because <laughs> if you have a hot guy's dick in your mouth, you need to put it down for a second so we can talk. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> Me too. We should start a support group. People who do not currently have hot guy's dicks in their mouths. It is the middle of the work day. As it is for me. So <laughs> I just wanted to call and first of all say he's hot. Prove it. Send me a picture. Uh, but also, you know. All I have is a picture of his dick. He's a good looking dude, right? You said? Yes. And he's a good looking dude, right? And so, Correct. And because, you know, good looking people, people defer to them. People want to please them. He got something. He got something for nothing. Yes. Is your, your, the implication of your call. He got something for nothing. He got a blowjob without having to perform any oral on you. But did you get something out of it? You got to blow a hot guy. Did you enjoy blowing a hot guy? I did. So it wasn't completely without any pleasure for you. That's true. But most of the pleasure, I think, comes uh, – it's not pleasure for pleasure's sake. It's pleasure in getting to tell people I blew this hot guy or, uh-huh. you know, I'm, I'm 41, reasonably attractive with this super hot guy, uh-huh. 20 years younger. That feels good. Right. But to me, that's less important. Right. But if the know. price of admission you had to pay to have that experience with somebody 20 years younger and to have that affirmation of your hotness and to have the bragging rights was no oral for you, obviously that was the price of admission you were willing to pay because you went into that blowjob knowing that. That's true. I'm not saying the principle of the thing isn't fucked up here. I'm, the principle of the thing, he's a selfish little twat. <laughs> principle of the thing, right. he's in the wrong. But looking at the okay. big picture, it's not like you got nothing out of it. It's true. It's true. And sometimes sometimes you do for somebody because doing for them turns you on irrespective of whether they're doing for you. Sometimes you do unto others uh, knowing that they're not going to do unto you quite the same way because it doesn't turn them on to do unto you right. quite the same way. And right. that can be shredding a little bit. It can like hurt your feelings a little bit. But then you have to put everything on the scales and go, all right, he didn't eat my pussy. But holy shit, I get to go tell all my friends that I banged this insanely hot dude. Right. And you know, I wouldn't want to be with somebody for life who wouldn't eat my pussy. I would certainly not agree to that in any sort of long-term relationship, that imbalance, that, that last, of lack of reciprocity. Not. But for a one-off, like fun sexual adventure experience, I right. don't know. Meeting the needs of somebody who's a selfish dick, sometimes that's fun. It was fun. So you got something out of it. I did. You got to come on the Savage Lovecast and talk about being 41 years old in an open relationship and banging some <laughs> selfish – Dick 20-something hottie, right? Right. <laughs> so it wasn't – it's not uh, like there was nothing here for you. It's true. I'm sitting here listening to you talk about blowing this guy who wouldn't blow you and I'm jealous. <laughs> like I'd like to blow that guy who wouldn't eat my pussy. But he sounds so, hot. He, yeah, he's very hot. But so – is, can he get away with that all the time just because he's hot? I asked him if other women were okay with him not going down on them, and he said yes. And well, wh- wh- I know which women are we talking not- about, though? Would you have been okay with him not going down on you when you were his age? Mm, no, I don't think so. It depends what our situation was. Well, I just think women in their forties, thirties, and forties tend to be a little bit more. That's true. I, I, yeah, I know what I want, and I'm going to ask for it. Right, now. you're sexually right. assertive. You knew what you wanted. You asked for it. He said no, and then you stayed. You made that right. choice because there was enough on the plate, even without what you wanted, for it to be a pleasure for you to stay. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's totally possible that he, at his age, has encountered no women 
who were as assertive as you and hopefully you were you were the beginning of a cascade of women going, dude, and it'll get through his head <laughs> that he can't go through right. life like this and it may cost him a relationship because you, would, you wouldn't be in a relationship with this guy. Right. 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 So he may meet a woman who he wants to be in a relationship with who's like, oh, ha, 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 a relationship where I blow you and you do not eat my pussy? Ha, ha, that ain't right. happening. And maybe right. that will bring him around. Maybe you're the first sign that he's going to have to come around and you have you have, you have put that first chink in the wall, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and it's going to collapse in time. But yeah, good-looking yeah. people can sometimes be dicks and get away with it because they're good-looking people and that's yep. just one of the facts of life. But know that in 25 years, he will not be a good-looking person anymore most likely <laughs> and he will have to bust out some skills and compensate for his fading beauty eventually. Yes. Good. This is the paradox of the good-looking person. This comes up in conversations, you know, previous conversations with other callers, other people. It's often good-looking people are lousy lays because they don't mm-hmm. try because they, they don't mm-hmm. have to try harder. It's better to sleep mm-hmm. with Avis than Hertz, right? Right. Is it the other way around? I can never remember. Who tries harder? Who's number two? <laughs> this is a really old – I'm dating myself with this reference to a 30-year-old ad campaign for a car rental company. But one of them was number two and their slogan was we try harder. Sometimes people who are less attractive, they got game. They're good at it. Yeah. They're, they're very seductive and they, they have skills and they really want to do for you. But sometimes yeah. like to subserviently just like meet the needs of someone who's scaldingly hot, that can be hot too. Yeah. Yeah. It was hot. I had a good time. But you wouldn't see him again. I might. <laughs> he sucks and he hurts my feelings and I can't wait to get over there and service <laughs> this man again. He's so hot. I'm with you. I would probably do it too. No, I'm cursing all the way. Oh, goddamn! These beautiful people who keep putting their penises in my mouth. Look at what they get away with. Goddamn them! <laughs> right, right. Well, if I do see him, it won't be for more than six months. Is going to be the next time we're in the same place at the same time. So we'll see what happens. Send him the link to the show. I will. <laughs> Thanks for jumping on the phone. All right. Thanks for calling. Enjoy the rest of your workday. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old gay man from the Midwest. A couple weeks ago, I started chatting with this one guy I met on an online dating site. We've been texting each other daily. I even spoke to him on the, over the phone. I asked him out about a week ago. Now, I have some doubts. He is recently divorced and has an ex-wife and a kid. Try as I can, I actually like him. And he's really nice. Now, my family worries I might be being played or being conned. I worry I'm a, a psycho, or in all likelihood, a very nice guy with major boyfriend potential. So I have not been with much. I worry about that. What do you think? Should I bring me? A psycho or a nice guy with boyfriend potential? Who can't that be said of? Everyone potentially is boyfriend or girlfriend material or a psycho. The only way to figure out if somebody is one or the other is to risk getting to know that person better. That's what dating is all about. And more than half of all people's romantic relationships now begin online. I don't have the stat in front of me. It's way up there, maybe even higher than that. Uh, if people were routinely murdered by everybody who was dating online, uh, people would stop dating online. Not that people haven't been murdered by people they met online, but people have been murdered by people they met in person. It's not like meeting some other way provides you with some immunity from dating a psycho. What you have to do is use your best judgment, go on a date, hang out, meet him in public, go have coffee, go have dinner. Don't put yourself in a position where you are vulnerable and isolated and alone uh, with somebody that you do not know at all. Uh, so go out in public and do the public 
date thing. Meet him for coffee. Let everybody – let your family know where you're going and with whom you're going. Let them know where you are and who you're going on this date with. Make sure you ha- make sure you know his real name and you have a real phone number and he's an actual human being who exists in the world. That he has an ex-wife and a, and a child, that's relatively common, less common now than it used to be. It used to be that a lot of gay adults uh, had – Previous heterosexual relationships that they had to get out of to become gay adults because they were coerced into marrying young when a time when everyone married young. So it was really common for openly gay men to have families, to have ex-wives and children. Um, rarer now but not unheard of. So if that's your only evidence that this guy may be some sort of psychotic liar, that he has an ex-wife and a child, that's not evidence of psychotic liar. That's evidence of – Bumpy early life on the way out of the closet, which everybody has a bumpy ride on the way out of the closet, whether they have an ex-wife and children to show for it or not. So give them the benefit of the doubt. There's no relation. There's no sex. There's no relationships. There's no romance without somebody giving somebody else at the outset the benefit of doubts. And he's giving you the benefit of the doubt. You could be the fucking psycho. This call is a little psycho. Your question is a little psycho. You could be not psycho dangerous, psycho vicious, sadistic, going to kill somebody but psycho paranoid and psycho self-defeating and psycho listening to your family who sound like they're more invested in undermining your romantic prospects than enabling you to have any sort of romantic life. So leave the mace at home. Go have lunch with the dude. Go see a movie and – See if the person he is in person jibes with the person he seems to be online. And if he is, then go on another date and 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 then blow the man and be blown by the man. And then that's how relationships start. You may find somewhere along that process of dating and getting to know him, you may find disqualifiers. You may find that he has personality traits that are so repulsive to you or offensive to you or not what you want in a partner that you naturally end it. And that doesn't mean he's crazy or psycho. It's just that's what dating is. Dating is a discovery process where you discover things about that person and you try to figure out whether you guys are good for each other and going to work together as a couple and, and you're going to get along and you click. It's not about figuring out whether you need to bring mace to a first date. Bring your game to the first date. Bring your best self to that first date. Uh, and your best self is the person who gives this other person based on what you know about him so far the benefit of this kind of doubt. There are no relationships. Relationships are impossible without people giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Hey, Dan. I'm an 18-year-old bisexual lady, and I just moved to Seattle a few months ago. I've been dating this really amazing guy. He's older than me. He's 26. Things started out really casual, but now we're pretty much boyfriend and girlfriend. Anyway, things are great. The only problem is that in three months, he's moving across the country to further his career as an artist. And uh, he's been planning it for a long time, and I've known that he was moving since the beginning. Um, the thing is that after four months that we've been together, I think I'm falling in love with him. And I don't know what to do. He's joked about me going with him, you know, when he moves, but we both know that that's not realistic because I just am getting settled in Seattle. And, like, we have so much fun together, but I get depressed in the winter, and I'm worried about how heartbroken I'm going to be when he leaves. I don't know whether I should break things off now and start dating around to kind of, like, lessen the blow of him leaving, or if I should spend the next few months with him and try and have a good time, even though I know he's going to leave. 
I'm worried that I'm just going to fall more in love with him in the next months that we spend together and, you know, potentially make my heartbreak even worse when the time comes that he does move. I don't know what to do. I really like this guy. Can you help me out, Dan? Everything I'm about to say is going to be so contrary to what I just said to that gay kid who wants to go on the date with the guy who has an ex-wife and kids. Um, you should keep dating this guy. You should spend the next three months dating this guy. Not so that you fall deeper and deeper in love with him, which is of course a possibility in setting you up for heartbreak and depression, particularly in your first Seattle winter, which believe me is heartbreaking and depressing enough without a breakup on top of it. But part of what you figure out while you date somebody is whether you like them or not and whether you want to be with them or not. You could hang out with this guy for three more months and in that time discover that you are not that into him, that you could figure out that he's not who you want. And you could then, you know, a month from now, you could be impatiently biding your time until this motherfucker leaves so this can be over. You may find that you are so hopelessly in love with him after three more months that you will reconsider moving with him. That happens. People do that. People do reorient the, the entire course of their lives because they've fallen in love with somebody and they follow that person somewhere. That happens. You may do that. It is just as likely though because every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't because most people don't wind up with the person uh, that they're dating at 18 for life. You may find in the next three months that he ain't for you. Whereas if you end it now prematurely, you will then engage in silly magical thinking that he could have been the one and that you ended it because of circumstance and you, you, you cut it off prematurely at this point where it's still like lovey-dovey-dovey crazy honeymoon phase before there was even a first fight. You'll come to idealize this prematurely truncated and ended relationship. And it will loom larger in your mind than if you spend the next three months sort of fucking this guy, dating this guy, hanging out with this guy, get to the point where you're farting in front of each other and you may find that when it's time for him to go, you're ready for him to go and you're ready to move on to your next romantic or sexual possibility or adventure. Just as likely. I would say considering the stage of life that you're in, likelier for it to be that latter option, likelier for you to hang out with this guy for three more months and determine that he ain't what you want. End it now though and he'll always be the one who got away. He'll always be this sort of magical, perfect dude, this, this, this amazing relationship that you ended to spare yourself the heartbreak and drama but then you will pine. Stick with it for a while and you may find when he leaves that you ain't pining. You aren't pining at all, that you're actually kind of happy to see him go. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight male. I've been in a relationship with this girl for more than a year now. We're living together and you know we've been going through kind of a rough patch lately. So we had kind of a big fight last night, and I attempted to break up with her. Uh, she got really upset at this point. You know, obviously I kind of anticipated that. You know, she, uh, she was really upset that I was leaving. She told me that she had like no one else. Her parents don't, uh, don't live in the country anymore. She, you know, that was all she had basically. She, she got really upset, and she went. And she grabbed the razor and threatened to kill herself. And Honestly, it was one of the scariest moments in my life. I had to physically restrain her. It was really just a terrible experience. And after that, uh, after a couple of minutes, I managed to calm her down, told her, you know what, I still like want to give this a chance, and I really do, but what, what do I do if I ever find myself in that situation again where maybe I don't want to keep trying or, you know, what should I do? 
Joining me by phone from New York City is Dr. Jill Harkavy-Friedman. She's the Senior Director of Research and Prevention at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with me today, Dr. Harkavy-Friedman. Thank you for having me. This is an important situation. It is, and this is a question I've gotten uh, more than once, and so I, I really would appreciate you coming on to, to share your perspective and expertise. Someone is trying to break up with somebody. Uh, the person they're trying to break up with threatens to kill themselves if uh, they are dumped. And, and what is your advice for people who, who want to end a relationship and the person they're trying to break up with basically takes themselves hostage and threatens to harm themselves if they're, if they're dumped? What, 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 is the, what is the person trying to dump that person supposed to do at that point? Stay with that person for the next 60 years? Right. You know, no. The idea is to help the person be safe but to understand that it's not a typical reaction to breaking up. And that it's probably a sign that they're in unbearable pain or very desperate or feeling threatened. And when they get like that, then they're not, their thinking and problem solving ability falls by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So if you know that someone has learned ways to calm themselves down and manage themselves, that's one thing you can do in the moment. You do need to take it seriously. You would rank that as a credible suicide threat. You should, someone should take that seriously. That isn't somebody just pushing a lever trying to manipulate you. If somebody you're trying to break up with threatens suicide, you need to take that threat seriously. Yes, definitely take it seriously. The person is feeling desperate. Whether or not they kill themselves is an unknown. Mm -hmm. So what do you do next? Okay, you take it seriously and then? Then first keep them safe. Try to remove anything that can be lethal and try not to leave them alone. Mm -hmm. Then try not to make them feel any more embarrassed or trapped than they already do because they're not, they're not feeling fine. They're feeling probably desperate and frightened and um, they may not know what else to do. So it's not your fault and you have to be able to feel safe when there is an argument or a breakup. So try not to make any promises in the moment. This is a situation that has to be dealt with independent of the nature of your relationship. Mm -hmm. Then I would think about if the person has been sad or irritable, using substances, not sleeping, or in any way not like their usual self. And the reason that's important is you may need to call somebody for help. You do not have to be in this alone. And based on what you know about how they've been, you might call a family member a mental health professional or a clergy member or the lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, which is 8255, because they're equipped to help you sort out the situation. Mm -hmm. Also, it's important to know that if a person acts on suicidal ideas, it's not anyone's fault. You do the best you can, and in that moment when the person is in the throes of their feelings, they may not be accessible to you. You may or may not be able to reach them. That's why it's important to try to keep them safe. We know these kind of crisis moments do pass. And the likelihood is that the person will calm down and then you can help them get help. But you can't stay in a relationship because the person gets suicidal. You can help them get help but you can't be held in, in that relationship but, because but it, of it. It does sound like you're recommending not to press the issue of the breakup in that moment that the person is threatening suicide, to drop it, back off, stay calm, get that person some help, call a clergy member, call a family member, call the uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention hotline 
and sort of kick the breakup can down the road just a little bit? At what point can you then break up? I, I think this guy is in perhaps a bad situation with this woman, with his girlfriend now because he tried to break up with her. She threatened suicide and now he's giving it another chance. And is she going to have it in her head then that whenever he tries to break up with her, she can push that button, threaten suicide, and he's going to have to put it on hold to break up forever? No, I think I think you're bringing up an important point. So when things calm down, you both need to talk about what happened. And you may not be able to do that, just the two of you. You need to do that in a safe place because that, those behaviors may come up again. Mm -hmm. So you may want to have another person present if you're concerned about it happening again, which is obviously of concern or he wouldn't be worrying about this. But you can't stay in the relationship. What I'm talking about is dealing with the crisis moment when the person is not thinking clearly mm -hmm. and get them through that, get them safe and calm down. And then you can talk about what happened and how you're going to deal with breaking up or how you're going to deal with an argument so that you can do it more safely. But in the end, you, you try to help the person, but they have to agree to get help as well. So your advice isn't stay together forever because this person is suicidal. The advice is de-escalate in the moment and then extricate yourself from this relationship very carefully so that you don't push this person over the edge. If you, if that's what you want, if you want to break up, you have the right to break up. But try to do it in a way that's more safe for the person. Maybe help them get some help mm -hmm. so that when you do, they have a place to process it. If they don't want to go get help from a professional, maybe, like I said, a clergy person or a friend or a family member can help them through it. But you, staying in the relationship because you're afraid of what they're going to do is not going to help either of you. And it's not just – can you give the uh, hotline number again? Because it's not just people who are feeling suicidal who can call this number, but people who are uh, the girlfriends or boyfriends or partners or parents or friends of people who are feeling suicidal who can call this number to get help and advice uh, and referrals and resources. Can you give that number one more time? Yes. And it's actually um, – it's, it's run by the Lifeline. It's actually not run by American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Ah, sorry about that. Although you can find it on our web website. Um, the number is one 800 273 talk, which is 8255. And I just want to say that suicide doesn't just come from a fight or a breakup. It's a complex situation that is a result of many factors coming together. It, it's never just because you're breaking up with them. And it's a sign that the person really needs help. They are desperate. They feel terrible pain. They don't know how to solve their problem. And that's what they need to work on. Not, not to... Um stomp on a landmine or anything, but would you agree that there are times when people who are not suicidal manipulate people with threats of suicide, manipulate their friends, parents, partners with threats? Well, I think of it, I think of manipulation as something we all do when we see a problem and we want to get out of it. Mm -hmm. It's just that the consequences of that kind of behavior are feel more negative. But if someone had a better way to do it, they probably would do that. And so what we know about people who have, uh, you know, are at risk for suicide is that in general, their thinking, their weighing of risks, even in the calm moments, is somewhat different from somebody who's not at risk for suicide. And there are many factors that can cause that. It mm -hmm. could be a head injury. It could be a history of having been abused. It could be being in the throes of a depression, which makes changes your thinking. 
so they're just not thinking the way other people do. And so that's, that's their way of solving a problem. It's just not very effective and it affects a lot of people. So, so, you're saying, so you're saying there's rarely such a thing as an idle suicide threat or just a manipulator using threats of suicide to control someone. So, so that, that you, should, you should err on the side of taking the threat seriously even if you suspect it's manipulation tactic? Yes, because sometimes they don't know. If the crisis emerges and escalates, they may do something that they didn't think they were even going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, is every time, I mean, it's possible that somebody plans this in advance and says, when they do that, I'm just going to threaten to kill myself. That's a larger issue and a larger relationship issue. But if that's happening at all, then the relationship needs help and that person needs help because they don't know what else to do. Dr. Jill Harkavy-Friedman, Senior Director of Research and Prevention at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, Dan, and the tech savvy at Verse 28-year-old straight guy from the Midwest here with uh, kind of a dilemma. I've been in a relationship with a woman for um, about five years now, I guess, and um, things are just going south. It's just not going to work out. I don't want to bother with the song and dance of why. Um, but I just cannot be in this relationship anymore, and I've made the decision to end it. But my question is, our finances are so thoroughly intermixed and entwined, I don't know how, I don't know what to do, and I could really use some advice because I'm seriously stressing out about this. We have one account for our phones. We have a joint car insurance policy, electrical bills, you know, just everything. All of our finances are thoroughly intertwined. I don't know how to end this. I don't know how to disconnect the relationship. She started her own business and I quit my job to run this business with her. And it takes up a very sizable portion of my house. Um, we pay these bills jointly. So if and when, you know, the breakup happens and she leaves, I have no job. I have no means of paying my mortgage. We don't have the finances to really separate right away and kind of stressing out. Don't know what to do. I can't help you. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can say. Uh, you may have to stay in this relationship for a while and you are not alone in that. During the recession, uh, the divorce rate fell. You know, That's a little counterintuitive. You expect financial pressures would break couples up. But actually financial pressures can keep couples together because divorce and breaking up is expensive. And if one partner has – no income it may, and, and a desire to leave, it may be actually impossible for that partner to pull the trigger in the relationship because they don't have a job. They can't pay the mortgage. They can't pay their bills and so they stick the fuck around. Um, Matthew Iglesias has a great piece at Slate from just a few weeks ago. It says, help America get divorced, the coming boom in failed marriages and why it's exactly what the economy needs where he makes the point that with the recession, with this recovery, unless the Republicans manage to destroy the world economy in their – ongoing idiotic fit and attempt to block Obamacare, the economic recovery is going to lead to a, a much higher divorce rate because there is this pent-up demand for divorce that was stalled and stayed by economic pressures that kept couples who wanted out together because they couldn't afford to break up. And I'm sorry, you're stuck perhaps for right now in this relationship. You may have to make the best of it. Sounds like you want out. Sounds like you know it's over. I generally advise people once they know it's over to – End it and get out. But if there's nowhere for you to turn, if there's no way for you to pay your mortgage, maybe now's a good time to sell your house. Maybe that's something you need to think about because 
the housing market is back. Housing prices are up. Maybe you can afford to end this relationship if you're willing to sell the house that you live in now to get out. You have to, you have to decide what you're willing to do to get out of this relationship, how much economic pain you're willing to absorb to be out. But there's no good solution to this. I mean I could tell you to get a job. I'm sure that's occurred to you. But there's no easy way out when you've mixed your finances together, when you're economically interdependent or fully, wholly dependent as you may be right now on your partner, on your girlfriend or wife or fiance or whatever the fuck she is. There is no easy way out. This is going to be rough and ugly and you need to think about rough and ugly possibilities like selling your house, like moving back in with your parents if that's a possibility for you. And you need to decide if that's a price, an economic, social price perhaps that you're willing to pay to get out. And the world is full of research on couples that hit this point in their lives where they wanted out and economic pressures or family pressures or young children made it impossible for them to actually pull the trigger and end it. And years later, they're still together and it was those pressures that kept them together through a low point. And sometimes we don't know that we're in – a low point where if we had the means or the opportunity to end it, we might. We don't know until later that we're grateful that we didn't have the means and opportunity to end it at that moment. Sometimes a circumstance like this where it's impossible to divorce or separate or move out, uh, later we're grateful that that circumstance prevented us from ending a relationship that maybe in a year or two could have bounced back and we're grateful to then be in. That is a slim chance at a silver lining, I realize, but that has happened in, in people's lives and perhaps that could happen in yours. I got no magic words for you. Dude, I'm sorry. We have more of your calls and questions coming up in just a moment, but we're going to pause here for our semi-regular segment, What You Got, where we invite leading sex researchers and scientists on the program to talk about the results of their latest studies. This week, we have a really interesting study out of Queen's University in Toronto on masochism and female desire and all sorts of crazy stuff. It's really interesting. The paper is interesting. And we're going to speak right now to one of the leading sex researchers uh, on the subject of female desire in the entire world, Dr. Meredith Chivers, Associate Professor of Psychology at Queen's University and Director of the Sexuality and Gender Laboratory. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Dr. Chivers. So, uh, Meredith, what you got? What I got for you this time is a new study that we just published looking at the sexual response patterns of women and men with conventional sexual interests and also sexual interests in uh, masochism. And this is, um, we're pretty sure this is the first study that has looked at the sexual response patterns of um, people with interest in masochism. And what were you looking for? I mean, masochism turns on masochists and conventional sex turns on people interested in conventional sex. What exactly was the study designed to, to, to find or run to ground? Yes, absolutely. So I, that would be exactly what you would predict. Of course, people are going to show response patterns that parallel what they say they're sexually interested in. The question is, do people's sexual response patterns to the kinds of sexual activities they're interested in mm-hmm. – um, do they match what they say that they're interested in? So do their physical responses, so we measure genital response in the laboratory. We also have people report how turned on they feel. Mm-hmm. We had folks with vanilla sexual interests, folks with sexual interest in masochism come into the lab, women and men, listen to stories that described either conventional sex or uh, pure masochism or masochism with some sex rolled in. And we wanted to see, does their... Uh, experience of sexual arousal match what they say they're turned on by. Now, the reason that this was an interesting question is that 
I've, I've been doing research for the past decade or so looking at sexual response patterns among women. And what we found is that particularly among heterosexual women, their sexual response patterns don't seem to differentiate on the basis of gender. So what that means is a straight woman, she's listening to, you know, stories of two women getting it on or, or a man and a woman getting it on, and her body is responding about equally to mm-hmm. these stories. Very different from what we see with queer women. They tend to differentiate in the direction of more arousal to female stimuli. So, so straight women are just like perverts. They're into everything, and anything, <laughs> anything that moves. Straight women are the puzzle. <laughs> I, who knew that this would be where this research program would end up? But yeah, they're they're really kind of a mystery in a lot of ways. And so, this was part of the motivation. And let's come at this question from a different angle. So we've been interested in you know a variation in people's interests in gender. So men and women both. What about variation in interest in sexual activities? Because we know there's lots of variability in what people like to do to each other or do to themselves when they get together. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of the, the motivation to seek out folks in the BDSM community because you know this is a variation in what people do with each other that is, um, we call it in the paper, benign. In the sense that lots of the other research that has looked at variability in people's sexual interests has focused on men and sexual interest in, um, in things like uh, non-consensual sex or rape. Mm-hmm. So if we take that all of the baggage that comes with having a you know potentially dangerous sexual interest let's look around folks who just have you know wonderful garden variety variability what do their response patterns look like uh-huh. so that was sort of the, the you know the the motivation um, behind doing this and what's interesting here is you know this is not just about you know somebody might be objectively independently turned on by what's being done that there's sadomasochism in play not necessarily by who is doing it that it's right. an S&M story. So the S&M all by itself, irrespective of the genders of the people involved, and that story might be arousing. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, what, did, um, so what did you find when you wired up find? the junk of all these people and made them listen to dirty stories? Because I would think, just my guess going in, is you know, people who are into conventional sex but not turned off by – or not into or maybe turned off by BDSM are not going to be turned on BDSM stories. But most people into BDSM are also into conventional sex too. Exactly. And most yes. BDSM arrives at conventional sex at some point during the play. Uh, you know, I often joke that you know you go into a dungeon yeah. and all these crazy things happen. Or you can observe all these crazy things happening, and at the end of the night, the two people doing all those crazy things are on the floor in the missionary position, having sex like your parents <laughs> did. Exactly. So, so what did you find when you wired everybody up and exposed? Them well, to you pre- you pretty much summarized it right there, which was that um, folks with conventional interests they showed what we called activity specificity, meaning that they showed their greatest responses to the conventional sex, lower responses to the masochism. What's really cool about this is that men and women showed very similar patterns, unlike this really strange gender difference that we get where women respond to both men and women, whereas men show what we call a gender-specific pattern, whether they're gay or straight. They look the same in terms of their activity specificity. Ah. Very cool. Second thing, so... And this is, and this is, wait, let's emphasize sorry. this. This is different because what you found yes. studying, you know, who you want to fuck is that men and women straight or, or queer identified, uh, right. the men have very specific about who they want to fuck and what turns them on. It has to be about their, you know, preferred sexual target. But women, yeah. even though they may be straight or queer, uh, get turned on by everything. But this study found that when it came to the, the this interest, that it yes. was more, it, it diverged in a way. It wasn't the same. It, 
Exactly. It did diverge for the women with can, who were into vanilla stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and the doubly cool thing about it, especially with those women, these were predominantly straight women. It didn't matter whether the dominant described as male or female. Mm-hmm. So the gender of the person didn't matter. What seemed to matter more was what they were doing. Right. The previous study showed that women were turned on by everyone, and this study found that women aren't turned on by everything. Yeah, they're more turned on by the stuff that they like. The conventional women are more turned on by the conventional sexual activity than the masochism. Okay. Now, there's a wrinkle to it, which is also quite interesting, which is the masochism for their for the uh, for the I'm going to call them the vanilla women because it's just easier. Um, the vanilla women, it, the masochism wasn't completely neutral for them in terms of their physical responses. They actually had significant genital responses to just descriptions of masochism. So, you know, things like you're kneeling on the floor, there's a tall menacing woman over top of you, your, your, your nipples are pierced, she's yanking on chains. That was sufficient for these women to have a physical response. Now, they didn't report that they were turned on, actually. They, they reported they were getting kind of turned off. Mm-hmm. But physically, they responded to that. But they responded much, much more to the conventional sex. And this is, this is where, you know, geeky scientists like me get super excited because, like, this it tells us something. Like, what is it about these scenarios uh, describing these female dominance or these male dominance that's sexy to people who say, I'm not into that kind of stuff? But is it sexy or is it just provoking some physiological sort of self-protective response? I mean, that's the well, argument, that's, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's one possibility. So, you know, myself, uh, colleagues of mine, we, we propose that the sort of non-specific genital responding is just about the body priming itself for potential sexual activity. But we've also kind of been uh, uh, wait, it a bit important further. caveat, the body priming okay, itself okay. For, for sexual activity, whether you want that sexual activity to occur or not. Exactly. The body is reacting to protect itself independent of your desire to participate. Exactly. Which gets into exactly. all sorts of dark areas around... You know, some women become aroused during yes. sexual assaults and then are very confused about why their bodies, in a sense, betrayed them. But in Absolutely. a way, their bodies are running on automatic pilot at that point to protect them. Exactly. This is a, this is a protective response that women are having, and it's reducing the likelihood of pain and injury. Right. So it's not a sexual arousal response. It's just a physiological self-protective response. I, I, when women. I talk to groups of, you know, sort of lay audience folks, I, I talk about it like how people who are vegetarians salivate when they smell bacon. You know, <laughs> they don't want the bacon, oh, but no, their no. body's like, yeah, that's, that's I'm uh, sorry. you know, vegetarians. that's relevant to... <laughs> vegetarians, they want the <laughs> fucking bacon. They just won't let themselves have it. That's different. They, they fucking want the bacon. I was a vegetarian for a while and I wanted the fucking bacon. <laughs> okay, well, that's a slippery slope to go down with <laughs> vegans and vegetarians. I'll let you have that argument. But okay, so, so what did you it, find it, when you looked at the masochists? So that was the, how the so, vanillas yeah. reacted. How did the, how did the kinksters react? So the um, masochists, the men and women, again, their patterns of responses looked really similar. And, and what we found was that in their physical responses, they really didn't differentiate between the conventional sex and the masochism with sex. And I've described the masochism with sex stories were the same, you know, uh, you're being, you know, dominated by a man or woman. And then there's like a little bit of oral sex or penetrating the woman with a whip handle, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So a little teensy bit of sex, nothing like full-on and graphic. So they are physically, they didn't differentiate. Both of these things were equally sexually arousing. And, and pretty much in their self-report responses, and when they asked them how turned on did you feel, they didn't really differentiate between the, those two as well. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's a number of things that we could 
possibly take away from that? So one of them. Yeah, I was just, you know, just going to ask you, what's the takeaway here? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a number of things we could think about. So one possibility, and we talk about this in the paper, is that you know, counter to this idea that people who are kinksters that you know that they get these very sort of rarefied and specific interests in certain kinds of things, and there's definitely those folks out there, but maybe you know having variation in your sexual interests is more about broadening a repertoire. Like you said, it's not like going you you know, your your night at the dungeon is going to culminate with sex with your partner and the sex you have with your partner is probably going to be fairly standard kind of garden variety sex. So both of these things are interesting and you know, sexually interesting to these folks. Mm-hmm. So that's one possibility. Now one caveat is that we didn't recruit people into the study who said I'm into masochism way, way more than conventional sex acts or that who had a very specific and rarefied sexual interest where people would say, you know, I'd really rather, you know, be hung from the ceiling in a Chinese body puzzle and taunted than actually have sex with a person. That for me is way more arousing and gratifying. Mm-hmm. These are, you know, this was just convenience in some ways. These folks are more difficult to find. Um, <laughs> well, they're all hanging from this, their ankles. Well, they're, they're, they're tied up at the moment. Right. So, so the question is, if we could find those folks, if we could bring them into the lab, would they show, you know, what we would call this, you know, activity-specific pattern of arousal, where they'd show way more arousal to the masochism scenarios than the conventional sex story. So maybe it has to do with that. The other possibility is that our stories though I think they were pretty good. You know, we worked hard to, you know, there was a lot of research that went into writing those stories. That People, you know, people who are into kink do have really idiosyncratic interests. Mm-hmm. And maybe our stories just kind of sucked and they weren't, you know, they weren't potent enough. They weren't describing the particular kinds of things that these folks were interested in. And we certainly did get some feedback like that from our participants. Like we asked them, you know, so what do you like? They just write a paragraph, tell us what it is that you're, you're into. Um, and, you know, in some cases that was similar to the kinds of things that we were describing. In some cases it was really divergent. So, you know, maybe our stories just weren't potent enough. And but if what, they were... But what this study ultimately found, what it contributed was when you look at just arousal to, you know, partners, proposed partners, men and queers, very specific, straight women, very broad. But mm-hmm. when you talk about activities, women, straight women included, are seem to be as specific as everybody else when it came yes. to acts. Exactly. So these previous studies found a, something un- dissimilar or unique about heterosexual female desire and response, and this study found something less unique or, or more in line with everybody else's standard response. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they sort of the uh, I think the conclusion with respect to what we know about women is that for some reason among straight women with respect to their physical sexual responses, gender doesn't seem to matter. Doesn't matter mm-hmm. who's doing what, but it matters what they're doing. That is fascinating. Um, yeah, it certainly is. It's going to um, keep us in business for a while. <laughs> I, actually, you, you used the phrase bring into the lab, and it made me think about how on earth could you possibly study people with medical fetishes who, who build like mm. fake medical labs in their home? Yeah. Just bringing them into the lab to study them would skew the results because they would just be it's, aroused by being in a lab. You'd have to bring them into I, Denny's to study them. I remember my research assistant who ran um, the male sample uh, telling me about you know one one scenario with a participant where she thought that he was actually getting 
quite turned on by being disobedient <laughs> and violating the research protocol. She actually had to end testing. She's like, this just isn't going to work. <laughs> oh, my God. Violating research protocol. How hot is that? I'm... Well, you know, we were aware that that might be a possibility. So uh, she was well trained for that eventuality if it, if it did come about. Meredith Chivers, Associate Professor of Psychology at Queen's University and Director of the Sexuality and Gender Laboratory. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us for this week's What You Got. Happy to do it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old female from the Northeast. I have a question about lying to your parents about your long-term relationship. I just moved in with my boyfriend of two years, who is 38, so we are 15 years apart in age. My parents just recently had an intervention with me about leaving him because of his age. After months of them treating me and my boyfriend very badly and all but ignoring our existence, They admitted they like him as a person and they know he makes me happy, but they think he will rush me into marriage and kids and thus derail my future plans and career. I responded to their intervention by saying that I am making my own decisions. I promise I am taking it slow and doing nothing rash, and I have no plans of getting married to him or anyone else in the next 10 years. But what I left out in a lot of the mission was that we just moved in together and signed a year lease. I don't want to keep lying to my parents and acting like I live somewhere that I don't, but I also don't want them to revoke all of the positive changes they've made in the last two months since the intervention regarding their attitude towards me and my boyfriend and our relationship. I want to keep the lie going and tell my parents when I feel they are ready to accept us that my boyfriend really wants me to come clean and tell them I've been living with him for the last two months. What should I do then? You're an adult. You're 23 fucking years old. The age gap between you and your partner is large 15 years but it's not 40 years. Tell mommy and daddy the truth. Let them have their tantrum. The sooner they realize that the tantrum isn't working, that they can't control you with these tantrums and you're going to make your own choices, the sooner they're going to reconcile themselves to the fact that you're with somebody who's all of 15 years older than you are and they'll gradually calm down about the marriage and shitting kids thing when they see that you're not getting married and you're not shitting kids. In any sort of clip. So the sooner you tell them that you've moved in, the better. I am 100% with your BF on this. This is actually – if I were your parents, I would hold this up as evidence that you're not mature enough to be in this relationship, that you're hiding where you live from your mommy and daddy. Be the adult that your parents don't think you are or are treating you as if you are not. Be the adult that your boyfriend is so attached to and in love with. Be the adult that you think you are. And lay it on the line with mom and dad and tell them that you have moved in with your boyfriend and that it was your choice and they should go fucking have their fit somewhere else and tell someone who cares that they disapprove. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about Secret Santa Exchange. My family has had a Pollyanna Secret Santa Exchange ever since I started it when I was in middle school. And since then, it's expanded to both my 17 cousins and their spouses and all of my aunts and uncles. My family, um, my mom's side is really conservative Christian and have always been pretty quiet about social justice and especially in terms of uh, equal rights for gay folks. And that's always not sat well with my immediate family. My sister is gay and my parents are on the liberal side. So we have every intention of changing the status quo in our family, but it's never, we've never really had an opportunity to do so. And then again, we've never really sought one out because we just wanted everybody to live on their own terms. However, this Christmas, my cousin, who secretly got married to her wife in Canada several years ago, I approached her and said, would she want her wife 
added to the secret Santa list? And she said, sure. I know that her, some of her siblings know that she's out and some of her siblings know that she's married. Other of them don't. I just actually got a call from another uncle who found out that this woman's wife was added to the secret Santa list and he wants to know why. And if they're married, then is that a problem? And why are they finding out that way? So I can't really tell if he's angry because he found out that they were married in this sort of situation. Or I can't really tell if he's angry because they're gay and now becoming um, part of our community, our largest community as a family, and doing so in a way that hides is still sort of partially hidden to the rest of the family. Just curious what your thoughts are and whether I did something wrong and should have had it be on their own terms the whole time or whether I did something right and went to the source and asked them whether they wanted to be included and decided that it was about time that they be included on equal terms. Just curious. Rarely do I hear a story of a family where there's Decent, loving people, accepting people on one side and homophobes and religious crazies on the other side. And at the end of the story, I want to slap everybody, everybody involved. Your cousin who is gay needs to be a fucking grown-up and come out to all of her siblings. When you're out as an adult to half your family, not the other half of your family, what you've essentially done is pulled half your family into the closet with you. And that is unfair and untenable and cannot be sustained over time, obviously, because eventually – the sanctity of the secret Santa arrangement will be violated, which seems to be what has happened here. So you need to say to your cousin, marriage is a public act. Marriage isn't sex in public. Marriage is a public commitment. And so you need to be out now to the entire family. Um, it's I think perhaps in the end it will be a good thing that you kind of – accidentally use this kind of passive-aggressive way where you were doing the right thing. Maybe you're the only person I don't want to slap. You were doing the right thing by saying, oh, you're married now and so she's part of the family. She's your spouse. Would she like to be on the secret Santa list, which is how one of the things people in our family officially become a part of? And she said yes and maybe that was her sort of passive-aggressive, scaredy-cat way of finally coming out to your large, extended, half-sane, half-crazy family about who she is and who – her roommate is to her. But it was a bullshit way to do it and that it shifts the responsibility to the homophobes and the people who may not be homophobic but have not been informed. shifts the responsibility to them to figure it out. It's like, oh, Susan's roommate is on the secret Santa list now. Guess she eats her pussy or something. Must be more than a roommate. Maybe they're lesbians. And that's not fair. Even to the homophobes, that's not fair to like say, here's a clue. Figure it the fuck out. Just come out. And she has essentially now come out. So she should just get in front of it, come out. And if the homophobes in the family have a problem and they regard the secret Santa list as this sacred place for only heterosexuals and their spouses, like some bakery that won't make a fucking cake for a queer couple, they can – at this point, it sounds like the secret Santa list is pretty large. I think you could divide this in two and have two fully functioning secret Santa setups, one for the crazy bigots and one for the sane side of the family. But the games that you're playing, you're being dragged into playing on behalf of this adult woman and her adult partner are bullshit. Time to out everybody. Yeah, she's on the Secret Santa list because they're lesbians and they're married. Get the fuck over it. And if you don't like it, get the fuck off my Secret Santa list. Ta-da, the end. Hey, Dan. I have a bit of a question and I'm wondering if you could give me some ethical feedback on how to approach this. I'm a 24-year-old gay man. I live in San Francisco. 
And recently I've been hooking up with this guy who's, he's in a two to three year long relationship. And I'm not quite sure if I should consider him a cheating piece of shit or if it's just one of those agreements that these couples have where they don't talk about it to the others and they don't rub it in their face. So when I asked him about what was going on and if he's ever had this conversation with his boyfriend, he said that they've never had an explicit conversation, but he's found his boyfriend's profile on Grindr before, and he has found evidence that he's going outside of the relationship. So I'm wondering, am I an accomplice to his cheating, even though perhaps his boyfriend is cheating as well? Or am I some kind of maybe secret vengeance that this guy's having because he found out his boyfriend was on Grindr? Uh, I'm not really sure. I know it's some of the best sex I've ever had. I'm a top. He's the bottom. He's usually the top in this relationship, so he says he's kind of reaching outside so that he can fulfill his bottom desires. But anyway, I was just wondering if uh, you could help me out and let me know with some feedback. You're asking me whether I can know or, or do know something that only the two guys in the relationship that you are now kind of being dragged into partway, they know for sure. They have this three-year ongoing thing. They have never, it seems, as far as you can tell, articulated the parameters of the relationship, their, their commitment, what it means, what's allowed, what's disallowed. And it sounds like they're both just kind of running around doing whatever because they don't have any sort of sexually exclusive agreement and they have no negotiated framework that allows for outside sex under certain circumstances. They're just – together but doing whatever they want uh, and not fully informing each other. And so does that make you an accomplice to revenge sex? I have no idea and neither do you. All we know for sure is that you are involved with someone and the sex is awesome and you love it and that's great and maybe that's enough to keep you boning this guy's ass for a while. But you're involved with somebody who has demonstrated to you by the way he talks about his relationship with this other guy that he doesn't have the emotional intelligence or the integrity to be honest with somebody that he's been in a three-year relationship with or to hammer out any sort of honest agreement or arrangement or framework that there isn't full disclosure in this relationship that he's presented to you as kind of an ongoing committed relationship but there's some feeling and he's not honest with that person. What makes you think he's going to be honest with you? Why would you want to be involved with somebody like that? Now, maybe the sex is great and you're not in any sort of committed relationship obviously with him. And so you're just sort of sticking your dick in the train wreck every once in a while and then walking away and going, wow, that's a real train wreck. Glad he's not my boyfriend. Glad I'm not with that person forever because train wreck. But hell, I'll ride that every once in a while, stick my dick in there, then run. And maybe you're okay with that. But I would just question the wisdom of being involved with someone who you know is either being actively dishonest or dishonest by omission, by not being proactively honest and not disclosing. He doesn't seem like a good partner. He doesn't seem like a good fuck buddy. When I, if I met somebody who's lying to their boyfriend or maybe implicitly lying or leaving everything so ill-defined that maybe they're lying or maybe feelings are going to get hurt, I wouldn't feel safe with that person sexually or emotionally. And I find it curious that you do. So maybe that's something you need to think about. And it's not like this guy's the only bottom in San Francisco. There are plenty of other bottoms in San Francisco for you to choose from. So it's not like his ass or no ass. Plenty of ass out there. Maybe you should go find some better ass. Hi, Dan. My question is about making mistakes in non-monogamous relationships. 
So I know that you've always said that mistakes are inevitable with monogamy, and I agree. Uh, but is it reasonable to expect a relationship without fuck-ups in a situation in which you've made the rules yourself? I ask because I've been with my boyfriend for four years now, very happily. We were no-holds-barred open at first, but then we became functionally monogamous as we got closer. We were both satisfied and worried about hurting each other, um, so we didn't sleep with anyone else. Then I went abroad for a bit for work, but we still saw each other regularly. It's a fairly short time. During that time, just five days before we were able to be together again, finally, he fucked up big time. He got wasted and had a threesome, which we hadn't discussed, so it was off the table, with two of our friends, which was also off the table, unless I approved, in my house, which was totally idiotic since he had his own house, and the kicker, he didn't use a condom, which was completely, I mean, we had discussed it as a deal breaker. So it's been four months, and now I've talked to everyone involved and uh, kind of tried to get through it, but I can't seem to get over it. Um, and I just found out last week that there were some consent issues involved, not rape level, but not exactly enthusiastic consent. So I'm really having a lot of trouble getting over it, and I really love this person, and I want to be with him, but I just want to know if, number one, if you think that, Mistakes are also inevitable with non-monogamy. And number two, if and how I can get over it or if I shouldn't, if I should just move on. Are mistakes inevitable in non-monogamy? Yes, they're also inevitable in monogamy. And no relationship lasts long if both of the people involved, if it's a couple or all the people involved, if it's some sort of polyamorous geometrical dome, can't forgive each other. Uh, if you, you need to be able to forgive uh, and sometimes forgive a, a serious betrayal, a serious error or there's no such thing as long term for anybody. How to get over this? I don't know. This is a really hard one. This tiptoes right up to that line of unforgivable betrayal and may pass it. You know, you had declared condom-free sex with others, a deal breaker. He had this uh, three-way uh, under circumstances that had specifically been ruled out, you know, even if he had used a condom. It does read from where I'm sitting or does seem or hear or listen, where I'm listening. It seems like this is something I look at and go, well, that's somebody slamming their hand down on the self-destruct button. They want the relationship over. They don't have the courage to end it themselves. Maybe they don't even have the self-awareness to know that they want it ended, but they're acting in ways that are going to force the end because they're going to make you break up with them. They're going to do shit that just goes so far past any sort of forgivable sin or betrayal that you can't continue in this relationship. You will dump them because they don't have the courage or the decency to dump you with their words. So they dump you kind of with their actions by forcing you to say it. You're going to be a better judge of whether this is that sort of circumstance. What does he say about what went down that night? Shit sometimes happens. Shit sometimes gets out of control. People aren't always thinking with their brains. Sometimes people's judgment is really fucked. How does he talk about it? How does he explain it? How does he not excuse it, not explain it away, but how does he want you to understand it? It's really in a way in his power to draw you a map that gets you to forgiveness. It helps you understand what happened and why it's not going to happen again and why it was out of character. Sometimes people do shit that's really out of character and it's not prelude to this happening again and again and again. Sometimes people make a big fucking mistake a cascading series of choices that are so fucked up uh, 
and it's not something that is – and it never happens again because it wasn't them and it wasn't what they wanted. It just sort of unfolded. Now, most guys want sex without condoms. Most guys want three ways with two hot babes. Most guys want what it sounds like happened that night. So maybe this is prelude and this is going to be a regular occurrence. Maybe what he will read into you taking him back and forgiving him and continuing on is that there's nothing he can't do, which is why people sometimes get a second chance but not a third. You clearly like the guy. Otherwise, you wouldn't be hesitating to dump him after this went down. Maybe you give him that second chance. Maybe you choose to regard this as a cascading series of shitty choices that resulted in this fucking train wreck and betrayal and you're going to forgive. But it cannot happen again. You will not forgive again. Because if it happens again, then it's not an accident. If it happens again, it's who he is sexually and who he is relationship-wise, which is – not loving and not safe and not someone that you want to be with all your life. The only way to find out if that's true though is to forgive him this huge and major lapse and then unfortunately wait around for a while and see if there's another. And if there is, then you know for sure. And if there isn't, then you know that that was a one-time, one-off, condom-free mistake. Hello, I'm calling in regard to a guy who claimed that he was using condoms while masturbating. Uh, I can say from experience that my husband has masturbated using condoms for years. Certainly not all the time or every time, but it does happen. So it's not outside of the bounds of the possible that this guy is actually telling the truth. I'm calling in regards to the woman who wants to know how to field intrusive questions about whether or not she's going to have kids from people. The way that I've always dealt with this is I just tell people that I'm barren. There's something about the word barren that makes people blush and not ask you any more questions. I hope that helps. Hi, Dan. This is for the girl that was in the last episodes. That wasn't dry skin. I think he probably had sex with somebody within the last, I would say, eight hours. Those are her vaginal secretions that are adhered to the base of his penis, which may be even more unsettling than uh, thinking that he has eczema or psoriasis or whatever. Sorry. Hi, Dan. Um, just calling in response to podcast 363, where the woman had a no drama rule. And I wanted to express how incredible that whole interaction was between you and her and say that I've actually noticed something incredible, which is that when people start telling a story and they start talking about how much they hate all the drama, anytime anybody mentions the concept of drama in the negative, it is a 100% indicator that they're a total drama queen. Try it out in your own life. Thanks. Bye. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow this week's What You Got guest, Dr. Meredith Chivers, on Twitter at QSageLab. Hey, Savage Lovecast listeners, we could use some intro music, some theme music for the What You Got segment. That would be really helpful. Break up the show. Uh, it would be nice if it was a cute little stingy, jingly thing. So if you've got a What You Got jingle in your soul, you can email that to nancy at thestranger.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.